the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcine Report number 138, February 1977 When the first act of demission, Satan, confronted Eve, he challenged her to abandon her naive faith and to subject the Word of God to critical analysis. He raised the question, Yea, hath God said? Genesis 3, one. Every word of God he held was a partisan and subjective word and should be given the careful scrutiny of critical analysis. Only then, he held, can man determine what the objective content of any word from God can amount to. And so was born modern education. I recall during my university days one elderly professor who held that poetry was to be enjoyed and any study of poetry should have as its purpose our greater appreciation of it. He was regarded with amusement by the other faculty members who were busy training us all to sit in judgment as little gods on Shakespeare, Milton, Don, and others. The more apt we were in critical analysis, the better our grades and the faculty's opinion of us. Our seminaries today do not really train pastors, although this is their formal function, and even though they do include a number of trash courses which are supposed to fulfill that purpose, what they do educate for is the production of an effectively trained group of critical analysts who can dissect Scripture but never or rarely see its relevancy to the real world. Thus, all too often, churchmen not only are deeply imbued within apologetics which has as its first principle autonomous man, but they also apply that autonomous man's basic tool, the idea of critical analysis. Critical analysis brings all things before the bore of man's autonomous mind as judge and arbiter of all things. Christian analysis subjects all things to the judgment of God's inscriptured word as the standard. The distance between the two cannot be bridged. Critical analysis is a weapon of impotence. It engenders nothing. It can only dissect. I am regularly told that while Chalcedon is doing some very important thinking in order to gain more academic attention, we should do something in the area of critical analysis. My answer is that we are in principle opposed to such thinking, and we gladly leave that domain to the intellectual eunuchs of our time. We are interested in thinking for action. St. Paul had this in mind. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 
2 Timothy 2.15. This is not all. Critical analysis is a form of retreat from the world. Man is not autonomous, nor is he God. All thinking which presupposes man as the basic judge and arbiter involves a flight from reality. It is no wonder that the world of autonomous intellectualism, the modern university, has had an ivory tower reputation. Critical analysis makes one remote from reality. This remoteness is never more apparent than when the critical analyst tries to desert the ivory tower. Karl Marx was savagely critical of the ivory tower mentality and the world of critical analysis. In his thesis on Feuerbach, Marx attacked the abstractness of critical analysis and called for its replacement by the revolutionary or practical critical activity he favored. In this scheme of things, autonomous man still remains. However, the critique is now no longer abstract and intellectual, but intellectually and actively destructive and revolutionary. Autonomous man must smash and remake the world after his own image, analysis, and imagination. These two concepts, on the one hand, critical analysis, and on the other, critical practical revolutionary action, are basic to modern education. At every turn, the student is prepared to judge the world and to require the world to meet his standards. Naturally, this involves judging his parents, teachers, and society. It also means passing judgment on the world, life, and God. The implication of Christian faith and analysis is that it is man who must change and be conformed to the will of God, and then to bring all things under the dominion of his Lord and Christ. The implication of critical analysis is that God, man, and the world must be conformed to our will, because we are the sinner, judge, and standard. It should not surprise us, therefore, that the major area of struggle in the United States today is between statist, humanistic schools and the truly Christian schools. This battle is not a dramatic front-page story in most cases, although it has such moments. It is being fought in the minds and hearts of men and in the courts of law. Too long a compromise with humanistic education has given the church weak men, double-minded, unstable in all their ways, incapable of receiving anything from the Lord. James 1, 7-8 Let alone acting ably for Him. Only as an education which assumes that every child is an autonomous mind, independent from God, and to be trained in a critical analysis, is replaced by an education which is in root and branch Christian. Training and educating youth in the truly liberal arts, the arts of liberty, or freedom in Christ, and dominion under His royal law. Can we have an education which has a grasp on reality and trains men of power rather than eunuchs? A society of eunuchs has no future unless it makes eunuchs out of youth. A Christian society alone has an assured future. It has the certainty of the sovereign and omnipotent God who cannot fail, and whose every word and purpose shall be fulfilled or put into force. Our interest is thus not in critical analysis, but in preparing men for dominion. 
Chalcedon Report number 139, March 1977. One of the key myths governing our age we owe to John Locke, 1632 to 1704. This is the myth of consent. Locke held that all legitimate governments rest on consent. Society is not natural to man, but rather conventional. With this myth, Locke laid down the foundations for civil disobedience and revolution. It was this myth of consent which governed the student movements of the 1960s, the revolutionary movements of the past two centuries, and is the basis of every protest movement of our time. According to this myth, the most basic right of man is this act of consent. Locke held, in his second treatise of government, that all men are in the state of nature and remain there till by their own consents they make themselves members of such politic society. Autonomy, or anarchy, is thus the natural and basic state of man. This autonomy or independence nothing can alter, diminish, or take away from, except by the free consent of man. While Locke added that men have a natural inclination to society, he made it clear that it is their autonomy which is basic and which is the fundamental source of right. Consent was thus exalted to a higher place of authority than any word or law of God and man. True, Locke, because of his Christian rearing, assumed that these autonomous men would more or less act like Christians, but he reduced the actual role of Christianity to a very minor one. Locke held that religion, meaning Christianity, is essentially a private affair, and that churches must be private associations only. The ultimate consequence of his views has been to reduce the faith to a domain within man's heart and mind only, not of concern to his social life and world. The essence of biblical faith, however, is that Christianity is the most public of faiths and that church, state, school, family, the arts, sciences, vocations, and all things else must be governed first and foremost by the faith not by either an institution or individual man. Lordship belongs to God, not to man nor to the state, or to the church. To restrict biblical faith to the private realm is to deny it, and to deny the God of Scripture. The myth of consent, however, transfers lordship to individual man. It makes man autonomous of man, society, and God. The ultimate sin and depravity, then, becomes any act which deprives a man of consent. Consent takes priority over God's law. It takes priority over other men and man's law, over property rights, over justice, over everything. It means that the whole world and everything in it must pass the bar of man's judgment. It was Margaret Fuller in the last century who, after much deliberation, said, I accept the universe. After great thought, she gave her consent to reality. Today, many refuse to do as much. This myth of consent has infected all levels of humanistic education and the children themselves. The final word, as boldly pronounced by many children and accepted by too many parents, is, I don't like it. The child quickly learns the myth of consent. In dealing with children, Mothers have moved through several states from 1. Eat it or I'll slap you. 2. Eat it, it's good for you. 3. See what I'll give you if you eat it. 2. 4. If you don't like it, don't eat it. 
In the face of this myth of consent, any effort to restore biblical authority is regarded as a monstrous act of oppression. One gentle and goodly pastor who established a Christian school on the premise of God's Word was pictured in a caricature by a national magazine as brandishing a bullwhip over cowering children. The fact that the pastor has never owned a bullwhip and is a kindly man meant nothing. For those who hold to the Lockean mythology, any denial of this ultimate power of consent is depravity personified. In terms of biblical faith, however, it is not man's consent, but God's word which is authoritative. The biblical pattern of government by councils of elders involves mature consent, but it is always subject to God's word. Government ultimately and essentially rests on the absolute and autonomous God, not on man's pretended claim to autonomy. It is God's word, not man's consent, which is authoritative. The myth of consent thus redefines depravity as anything which withholds the power of consent from man. The myth, moreover, has redefined consent. After Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx, the general will, the consent of all men, is mystically incarnated in a self-designated elite who embody that total consent in their will. Thus, whatever happens to any victim of Red China, the Soviet Union, the new African socialist states, or to any Cuban, is mystically his own consent judging him. The heirs of Locke and Rousseau find it a greater privilege and a higher freedom for a man to be a victim of a socialist tyranny than to be prosperous or reasonably free in a society which limits his consent. The myth of consent, however, destroys its adherents. I once asked an ex-student about a reformed professor of liberal beliefs who taught at his Midwestern University. The printable part of his verdict was, an opinionated bastard. Why? Consent to the student's own more radical ideas and opinions about class conduct had been denied. The ultimate sin had been committed because consent had been denied. The myth of consent presupposes autonomous man. This myth of autonomy is only attained by man in the graveyard. A graveyard man has no problems with others. He is a logical existentialist and he has ceased to exist, and therefore consents to nothing. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Deserves we should to 
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.